This is the first one that people don't like to hear as much because it's not time saving, but read the whole job description. Read it from like top to bottom because there'll be there could be responsibilities or hidden information that tips you off to the type of candidate they're looking for in that top paragraph where they describe what the role is going to do. Welcome to another episode of Hiring Behind the Scenes. This is where we lift the curtain on the hiring process by talking to recruiters and hiring managers in an effort to demystify the job search process and help you better understand how hiring decisions get made. Today, I'm talking to Stephanie Mansueto. Stephanie is currently a principal recruiter at Apt & Associates and has been involved in recruiting for over 10 years. Before that, she was actually a marketer and brings a really cool perspective from the business and the go-to-market side and actually applies some of those learnings to the recruiting process because ultimately it's kind of a marketing position. We go really deep into job descriptions, probably deeper than we ever have on this show, how they're written, language, the order of the words, how recruiters work to tease out the requirements from hiring managers, and then how ultimately as recruiters, they look at candidates' resumes to make sure they're satisfying the job description. It was a really cool conversation in a really nerdy kind of way to go so deep on what seems to be this kind of benign artifact in the hiring process, but super, super important. Stephanie gives so many cool insights and she's also a job search coach, so she brings a lot of guidance for candidates. It was a lot of fun and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Hiring Behind the Scenes. This week, we are with Stephanie Mansueto, who brings a ton of recruiting experience. We're going to dive deep into recruiting at consulting or service-based firms, and we're going to talk a lot about JDs. But Stephanie, how about you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Great. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I started out in marketing. I was an account manager uh, working with advertising agencies, full-service advertising agencies, and then decided to go into career change for international development, went to grad school for that, and then started working for professional services firm that work with the United States Agency for International Development. So doing international development work where you're addressing the most pressing social issues in developing countries. So everything from clean energy and climate change to health system strengthening or improving agricultural production or trade in developing countries. And I've worked in program management, operations, HR, and now I'm an in-house uh, corporate recruiter for Apt Associates. Awesome. Well, I love when folks bring like other functions experience to recruiting. That's just, like when folks pivot into recruiting, it brings like a richness to it, which is really nice. Awesome. Well, I'm really happy to have you here. And thanks for agreeing to be on the show. Yeah, happy to. So we want to deep dive into JDs. You know, it's kind of a topic I feel like I could endlessly discuss but I think the lens to bring a little today is sort of the nuance on job descriptions, not just sort of generically what they need to have and, and kind of how it's this piece of marketing material and kind of what a good one looks like, what you try to include in job descriptions. Also, I love that you are a marketer. So, I mean, it is a, it is a, a marketing document. But yeah, maybe you can give us, start us off at what are the high level proper components of a good job description? Yeah. So they'll always start off with, or at least they typically start off with an introduction or an overview of what the company does. You know, that could be really short, three to four lines, or you might see a couple paragraphs on what the company does, especially if it's it's not a large known one. And then it will go into typically 
a brief overview of what the actual position description is. So what is the purpose of the job? What's the title? Who the position might be reporting to? What department or team will it be supporting? And these can be anywhere from a couple lines to a couple paragraphs, depending on how complex or nuanced the position is. And then it'll typically go into the requirements, so the actual hard and soft qualifications that they're looking for. So that could be years of experience, education, your must-haves, and then your preferred qualifications. And then it'll have a section typically at the end on like application instructions. Do they want you to submit a cover letter with it? They might put a salary range at the bottom. They also might put that at the top if it's something that's attractive. And then if there's any kind of EEO, so compliance type language, that they might include at the bottom of it as well. So that's typically the structure of it. It can vary a little bit. The part about the role is that typically, I've seen that sometimes broken out into two. There's like a little blurb. It's kind of more like a pitch for the position. And then there's a responsibility section. Mm-hmm. Is different or is kind of one and the same? You know what I've noticed with a lot of job descriptions? They'll break it out. But if you really look at them, they can be very similar. If they're Some of them, they'll just kind of lump a lot of the same language into that first position description. And then they're breaking out some of that language into formal bullet points, into a responsibility section. So they can break them out. But you'll sometimes see a lot of overlap between those sections. Yeah, one thing as I've written JDs for Teal is, is responsibilities and requirements kind of like the inverse of each other? You know, it's like you will be responsible for A-B testing, you know, the website requirements. You have experience running A-B tests on websites. Yeah. Or is responsibilities trying to be a little bit more like projective and requirements are like you need to have at least done this in the past. How do you think about that part of uh, a JD? Yeah, I think of the responsibilities as more of what your day to day, your short term or your long term tasks are going to be. And it could be who you're going to be working with, departments or teams, donors, clients, gives you a little more information there. And then the requirements, though, are going to be much more detailed. Like, what are the years of experience that you had that you need maybe working with like certain social media platforms versus just having experience with the platforms? But we're looking for someone with 10 years versus five years. That's where you start really getting into like, what level are they looking for? How much experience are they looking for? But yeah. It's helpful to have that differentiated because sometimes you'll see the responsibilities written and it looks very high level, very strategic. And then you go into the requirements and you see something like it only requires like three years of experience. You're like, that sounds quite different. The experience needed based on what you see in the responsibilities. So the requirements, I think, always helps clarify the level of the responsibilities. So when you're going about writing in JD, can you you walk us through your process? and like where the hiring manager is involved in the process, everything takes to get a, and then you're even talking about like what's a good one versus like compromises you might make and then the the reasons you might need to, but to get a JD written. Yeah, so I'll use even an example at my employer, Apt Associates. So we're recruiting oftentimes for chiefs of parties, which are basically the CEOs of a project. They're working on a three to five year project. They're gonna be overseeing all the staff, ensuring the implementation of the program is going well in that country. So how we start writing, we'll have a template. Larger companies typically have templates that they're going off of and they're really rough or some could be a little bit more structured because they're based on job architecture. So that's another piece I want to mention. Some companies are not going to have a formal job architecture. And when I say job architecture, meaning they have job families, position titles a lot aligned to those job families and minimum requirements for education and years of experience aligned to that. So 
you would look first to, if you have a formal company or a larger company to see what their job architecture is. Can I ask a question on that real quick? Yeah. I'll try to get us back. I'm working on my tangenting, non-tangenting skills. Do you guys, do you all leverage a like Radford or a, a sort of more industry standard or has at this point evolved into something like pretty bespoke and unique to your organization? Yeah, I think some organizations are using a combination. So like, for instance, we're recruiting for people that might work in finance or have a banking background. And so we might use some established survey data to help us in developing like a job architecture. But then for us, there's some positions that just aren't fully developed yet, like working in climate finance. So applying financial services to climate change just isn't as developed. So we're having to, you know, determine levels based on what competitors are doing. So there can be a little bit of that. But we oftentimes are pulling from established industry uh, surveys or information around job classifications. Got it. Okay, cool. Back to now. Okay, so job families, we talked about those. Yep. So you figure out basically the level or the need and you're working with the hiring manager to determine that, right? The recruiter is going to be consulting the hiring manager on exactly what they need. And they might be sharing, you know, in some companies, the recruiter's writing the first draft of a job description. And in some instances, the hiring manager is actually drafting the job description. Um, So it really just depends. But ultimately, the hiring manager is the one that's going to say, yes, everything in this job description looks good. But you have a template. So you have an idea of of generally what the position is going to be doing. And then you're filling it in with more of the specifics. So in the case that I was giving about this chief of party, you know, what country they're going to be working in. Potentially, are they going to be working with certain stakeholders within that country? You're going to be listing that. Are they going to have to be working with certain donors? You would include that information. And then you're going to be getting into what are their day-to-day responsibilities? So, you know, they're overseeing the program. They're going to be managing the donor. They are going to be responsible for the budget and the burn rate of that budget and that project. So you're getting into the responsibilities. And then this is where I think it becomes a little more collaborative in some situations is the requirements. Because a hiring manager typically comes to the table with, this is what I think I want, right? So let's say, let's assume that they know what they want. They're going to say, I want them to have 15 years of experience in banking and finance, specifically with climate finance, and I want them to have an MBA. And then the recruiter would have to probably gut check that a little bit. Like, is that possible to find someone that has experience in banking and finance, climate finance in, say, like it's Mozambique, right? And we might say, okay, you can find someone that has the banking find climate finance experience, but are we going to find that with Mozambique? We might have to be flexible with the preference. So I think there becomes the requirements starts to become a little bit more of a collaborative discussion. What I've seen sometimes with uh, hiring managers is they want to get the job description out fast. They don't like the admin work. They don't really want to get into it. But I found that good recruiters are going to critically assess that job description because they know that there are people out there, the job seekers are going to be reading every word in that job description. And you want to avoid people applying for a job that it's just not a good fit for them. So that's where I think a little bit of that back and forth with the hiring manager and the recruiter comes in with what's realistic, what's your ideal unicorn that you're trying to go for, and what's the middle ground there. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, in your experience, the downside of a bad job description? Oh, so many. (laughs) But I'll start with one. The worst job descriptions I see are the ones that are really vague. So ones that don't, and I know this is a bit controversial and people have differing opinions on this, especially in light of DEI initiatives and recruitment marketing initiatives. But 
I always think you should have the years of experience required in the job description. Even if it's zero, if it's an entry-level position, put that in the job description. If there's no minimum requirements, you're going to get hundreds, if not thousands of applications. Because job seekers are typically looking at a job description from, do I like this job and can I do this job? And the more vague a job description is, the more applications of unqualified candidates you're going to get. And that becomes a nightmare to have to go through. And just for the people, you do go through those by hand, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, even at my level, I'm a principal recruiter. I've been doing this for over 10 years. I not only do I have to actively, proactively source people, but I have to go through hundreds of applications. Like I am one person's going through it. I know there are ATSs or applicant tracking systems that that will filter or at least make recommendations or scoring profiles. But we know that those are imperfect and I can't miss out. I can't afford to miss out on a good candidate because I relied so heavily on AI or an ATS to serve up. Actually, I'm on the hunt for like a brand that does that. And there's some new ones, some new ATSs that I feel like are making some headway. There's one called Phenom that looks pretty cool. You don't get to see reference. But do you know ones that do that scoring like by brand? I haven't. And I haven't experienced them because the companies I've worked with are larger. And oftentimes, and this is another thing I, I like to always tell people about is applicant tracking systems. You know, a lot of times companies are looking for ones that integrate with other functions within a company. So, you know, at Apt, we use Oracle and it integrates really well with a bunch of, you know, a lot of our finance accounting. And it's really useful in, in issuing employment agreements in, you know, the countries that we work, which not all ATSs can do that. So that's Taleo, right? The Oracle one is Taleo. I think they bought Taleo. Ours isn't Taleo specifically. They have a few, actually, I think, because they've bought a few. So I think Oracle owns a few. Do you know the name of it by brand? Oracle, I mean, we're, ours is called Atlas is what it's called. But oh. I don't know if it's, it's not Taleo uh, from what I know. And it's not custom built. You know, it's not. Yeah, I know some companies do that. They do custom build their own. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, I mean, the custom build is great if you can afford to do that and it can integrate. But we just haven't. When we went through that, that whole process, we didn't find one that, like, for example, making it a searchable database. That's great if you can have that kind of function built in. But we would just would have had a compromise on other key integration functions that we needed. So we weren't able to get that. But yeah, I'm not as familiar with the ones that are great at kind of serving up like a filtering based on the applications and serving up the top things. And you guys won't do that. So in your experience, you haven't. Yeah. I'm sort of on a, on like a, a quest to debunk every time someone brings that up. At least I'm mean, look, AI is resting very quickly, but I've yet to find anyone who actually is like, yeah, we use that feature, like this software, this feature, yet to find someone. Yeah. And I mean, they'll, I'll look at it, right? Like I always look at what they recommend because I'm like, maybe the ATS is like improving and it's getting smarter, but it's not. The recruiter's eye is going to be better than that, that capability. All right. So bad JD results in too many candidates. Again, this little tangent, sorry, which makes it harder to screen and all that kind of good stuff. But now, what do you feel are like the essential things that a JD needs to have? I think it needs to have, obviously, the education experience. What's the minimum there if it's required? It needs to have the years required for experience. If there's specialty hard skills or maybe software experience you need, anything that's, that might require a special certification or very specific experience, I think it needs to list that. And you would also want to include like proficiency level, right? Because that could be something where they're open to someone that has maybe only two years of experience with a certain software or a certain type of skill. 
But if you have a preference for someone with maybe five or six years, I think it's good to put in preferences. I always want to address that because, you know, you'll see a lot of job descriptions that have the requirements, minimum requirements, and then the preferred. One thing that I've noticed that can be really challenging for a lot of companies is some will separate out the minimum requirements and the preferred qualifications, and some will just lump the preferred qualifications into the required bullet. And you can get lost. But the preferred qualifications are so key because that's what's going to make you a competitive candidate. And especially in today's job market, most job seekers, you need to have several, if not all of those preferred qualifications. Yeah. And the other thing that I I frankly find annoying is that people put these under different labels. You know, there is no like unified standard. And it's an area where a lot of companies choose to express their brand. It's like, you'd be great if, or it's like, just call it the requirements, please. Just call it the responsibilities. Yes. Yeah, we call it nice to haves because preferred qualifications just sound super formal. But I don't know. Maybe that's just what I should call it. Like basic qualifications, preferred qualifications. Not very brand oriented, but clear. And I think it's what employers need to think about, too, is, is it really preferred or are you are you heavily requiring that? I think it's important because sometimes you'll see, like you said, the nice to have. But do you really want to see applications from people that don't have those qualifications? So my understanding is that part of what happens there is if the company is OFCCP, as soon as it goes in required, like literally cannot hire someone that doesn't have it. So it's like if the market map or the talent pool is too small by putting it all in requirements, they kind of need to, even though it's pretty important to them to not be under that OFCCP requirement they move it over to nice to haves or the preferred qualifications. Yeah, I guess, I mean, you're right. They do have that um, requirement they have to adhere to. Um, but I think in some cases, you can put it in required if you know the market, it's there for the market, right? Like if it exists, just go put it in there. So you're not kind of leading people on and having a way more applications come in. But, and I think that's where people might get a little skittish, right? They're feeling like we've got to put this under preferred and not put it under required. But if you know you can find someone with that qualification and it re- you're only going to be looking at candidates with that, then put it in the requirement. It just makes it difficult for people to look at a job description and say, well, should I go for this or not? I'm not sure. They're saying it's required, but. I think you brought up a, another really good point is in this market. I think that, you know, a lot of the job search advice gets talked about as like universally true for all time. And that's just very much not the case. The job market is a very, very dynamic and nuanced thing. And it changes by niche, right? Like it could feel like we're in a bit of a knowledge workers recession right now, but there are still very specific occupations that are highly coveted, right? If you're an AI engineer, you could kind of write your own ticket right now, again, proving the credentials and stuff. It's very nuanced. And so what might feel like, difficult for some occupations and some domains, because I think the occupation and domain, you know, you brought up climate, like a person who knows finance and climate might be super coveted. Someone who knows like direct to consumer e-commerce, it's like, well, that market's not doing great. So like not as coveted, same skill set, but that domain makes a huge difference. Yeah. And now what they're going to ask for, what they're going to demand in the market could be different, right? So yeah, we know for climate finance, there's not a lot of people that are doing that in the development context. So Our job prescriptions are going to be written to attract a wider audience because we know that there aren't a lot of people. But if you're in a market, right, like we were talking about, there's tons of recruiters on the market. You can be very specific in the type of recruiting that you want, you know, and the number of years or experience that you want a recruiter. 
who they've recruited for because you know you can get that. So I think in a, it depends on the market. You might have employers being pickier because they can be, and they'll put that in the job description. One thing that I've recently realized is I used to think that job descriptions were just this like pure inbound instrument. You'd post it on the website and hopefully you wrote something compelling that would get someone to apply. But more recently, again, this is sort of my lack of experience in recruiting now that I'm doing more of it, is it's actually an outbound document as well. Like if I'm sourcing and I'm sending it to people, there's almost even more pressure on this document to someone who's like maybe passively job searching, they have open to work on LinkedIn, but they're currently employed, so they can be a little more choosy. This document needs to hook them. What do you feel like the good JDs do to hook a candidate? Yeah, and and I want to give a nod to anyone that works in recruitment marketing. That's also been a function that's really ramped up in the past, you know, five to six years. And I actually appreciate them so much, especially with my my marketing background, because for example, there's a lot you can promote about, promote about a company. Like, are they ranked in like the top 50 best companies to work for in that city, right? And sometimes people take those rankings really seriously and sometimes they don't. But there's a lot that you can put in there that will sell your company for you in just a one to two page document. And again, I gave the example of these top ranking lists you can put in there. You also have more companies putting or touting their benefits in a job description. That's information you may have not gotten before, but you might be more inclined to apply if you know exactly what the bonus structure looks like or, you know, they provide fertility benefits. Companies are definitely using this as a marketing tool. It can be tougher, though, for the smaller companies that might not have as much stuff to tout. Um, So you might be relying more on talking about your culture or fast growth or the opportunities you get at a smaller company that you can't at a bigger company. So the way you use it or the way you phrase it can make a difference. You're also seeing, though, more recruiting marketers, especially help companies in how they they use phrasing. So before they would say things like he or she. Now they're taking out those specific pronouns. Like in our job descriptions at Apt, we say like what we value instead of requirements because it changes what we're saying. Like it's more just about what you're bringing collectively maybe to the position and not necessarily all these specific requirements or individual requirements. So, yeah, people are, or employers are really thinking about the language they're using and using it as a marketing tool. So, yeah, it's nice to see that. Do you have any experience using tools like Textio or something that will analyze job descriptions for genderness or like gender welcomingness? Like, I, I you know, someone I talked to was a hiring manager and they worked at a big Fortune 100 and they couldn't get the job posted because they could not get it to pass the Textio score. It was like coming off as too masculine which is, I mean, technology goes both ways. I love it as a initiative, um, but it was funny because it just like the, some of the things that it was citing as problematic were hard skills and like very functional components of a very hard skill position. It's like very engineering and the JD couldn't get posted because they could not pass. So do you have any experience with those tools and like, or the pluses and minuses of them? We haven't used that. I mean, we're, we're doing a lot of surveys with our candidates. So we're, we're kind of monitoring and getting their feedback along the candidate experience pipeline. So we're taking more of their feedback there. We haven't used um, any formal software for scoring. And honestly, for the exact reason you, you say, this software is programmed to nitpick everything. And we have to remember that a lot of times people, when they're going through job descriptions, they're skimming them. They're not reading every word. They're reading every third word. And they're looking, they're going straight to the requirements. And some of those requirements, a software might determine as masculine because traditionally men may have filled those roles or had those qualifications. But I think if you're paying attention to 
some of the language that you're using around pronouns. I think that's the first place to start. But I don't know if software has to be scrutinizing a job description that much. I think people are becoming aware of certain language not to use, right? Like no one's using we're a family anymore in a job script. No employer is saying that. So I think, and that's something software probably wouldn't pick up on, or maybe they would if, if it would, if it was programmed to do that. So I haven't had experience with it. And I think we've paid attention more to candidate feedback and the surveys and how we're, we're adjusting things, which I think it helps us in real time, right? We're not relying on software, which can't keep up with maybe social or cultural changes as fast as um, actually talking to candidates and job seekers. So building on that, we talked about like the job description do's, but what in what in your mind are some of the job description don'ts and can kind of translate into red flags for candidates? Oh, I think any any language that talks about it being just a very fast paced, any kind of aggressive language around it being fast paced and having to basically give up your life, right, for for this job. So I understand some jobs genuinely are fast paced and they require people to be able to move quickly and and um, make decisions quickly. But I think you can rephrase it rather than it, it sounding like you're taking away someone's work life balance. But I, I would be careful for you know, any job descriptions that that talk like that. Of course, anyone that referred to the company being really close-knit or like a family, that's that's always a red flag. And then we talked about the vague language in a job description or if they're putting too specific of requirements, right? Like if you're seeing a four-page job description where you're someone that's worked in that sector and you know that person doesn't exist, I would see that almost as like, is this going to be a very, very demanding role where they expect you to do the job basically of three people within one. So that's something that to be on the lookout for. On that note, do you have like a guideline for kind of number of bullets? Like, Because I think the bulleted JDs are the best. It's like super crisp and clear and the majority do it, having looked at thousands of JDs at this point. Yep. But what for you feels like the right amount of bullets? Because I can give that guidance on a resume. But what would you say, like if you're working with a hiring manager, it's like, hey, look, no more than X. Yeah, for responsibilities, I think I would say, and the more senior it gets, the probably, you know, maybe add one or two additional bullet points, the more senior position goes. But I say, generally speaking, under responsibilities, maybe put anywhere from like five to eight, maybe five's on the lower end, but for more senior position, maybe eight, eight to 10. And then under requirements, you know, for the actual minimum qualifications requirements, maybe three or four. And then preferred, you might have like an additional two to three. I do think that's a flag if you start seeing more preferred qualifications, more bullet points under preferred qualifications than you do for the required. Oh, that's a great call out. That's interesting. More in the, pref- yeah, because then they're like, you're trying to stuff it. That's a really good call out. Yep. In your experience, do you feel like there's a implied importance based on the order in which the bullets show up? Yeah. I mean, now you're you're really getting into it, right? Where I haven't seen too many hiring managers get into that. Recruiters, I think, do it instinctually because they know how people read these job descriptions. So they're going to put the most important ones first. You're going to put education or years of experience first and then go into the preferred ones. And then you'll even see like the soft qualifications, like exceptional presentation skills or... Yeah, I always feel like it's like the crappy ones at the end. Yeah. And I, I think what, but what they should do or what I'm, I, I always think people should do, and I, I always give this guidance when I'm working with hiring managers is if you need communication skills, what kind of communication skills? Like, is it you're going to have to be doing a lot of uh, mitigating and problem solving between departments or are you going to have to be doing a lot of presentations with external clients or donors? You know, that helps, I think, qualify the soft requirement a little bit more than what you typically see. 
Yeah, that's kind of what I, and it's, it's funny when people say, oh, you have to meet 100%. But when, when it's generic, like good communication skills in the requirements, like, well, sure, like super, you know, degree, binary, easy, you know, true, false. Yep. Years of experience, eh, you know, can be subjective because it's like they want it in a particular field. But then some of them become a little trickier. But yeah, that's been generally in my sense. Like, okay, let me get. And sometimes like if it's a little thin, I'm like, well, I, I can't just put like three. I need to put like five or six. And so like the sixth one is definitely kind of like a, so let me just toss it on here so it looks a little fuller. Yeah. And I think, again, good recruiters are going to call that out and say like, hey, we got to we gotta edit this boy because this means nothing. And typically higher marriages are like, sure, you tell me what it should be. And, you know, the recruiter should revise it. But those are some fluff bullet points if they're just putting communication skills or um, cross-departmental engagement experience. Sure, everyone's at some point is probably doing that type of work. But if it's a priority, you know, you can also tease out from the, oh, like higher up, they'll talk about the position description, like the responsibilities. And if it's talking a lot about collaborating with different teams, that's where you might actually want to talk about, or you actually look at the qualification, and you might want to read a little bit more into it and say, this sounds a little bit more important than what they've put in here. And one thing I want to remind people about is that you could have someone, that, a team that puts together a job description in less than like 24 hours. Like they're not putting a lot of time and thought into it. They're just like, we got to get this out. Just start collecting resumes. Like we got to get going on this. So I think that's one thing I always want people to be aware of is they're imperfect people that are putting together these job descriptions and they might not be doing their best job. And you're kind of bearing the brunt of it as you're reading this job description thinking, I don't know, maybe I'm qualified for this. There's not a lot of information here. So yeah, that's also on employers and the hiring manager and the recruiters to make sure they're giving the dedicated time they need to. So to wrap up, now, given everything we just talked about, what advice would you have for job seekers as they're reading JDs, right? I, as a person who you know, I am actively telling people the answers are in the JD, but we kind of just ended with like, well, some JDs are trash because they were put together pretty quickly. Yep. But, you know, I, I do think it's like it's the only information. Well, it's not the only information you have, but it's definitely a key source of information you have. You know, what's your guidance to job seekers when reviewing JDs to help them stand out and apply? This is the first one that people don't like to hear as much because it's not time saving, but read the whole job description. Read it from like top to bottom because there'll be there could be responsibilities or hidden information that tips you off to the type of candidate they're looking for in that top paragraph where they describe what the role is going to do that they didn't actually put in the responsibilities or in the requirement section that you know you would that would make you a competitive candidate that you can talk about in a cover letter or in your kind of informational interview with that company. So read the whole job description and try to read between the lines maybe in some instances where you're seeing some more qualifications or responsibilities that just might not be listed under that section. And then pay attention to the preferred versus required. Again, this differs by, you know, I don't want to discourage people from going for going from jobs if they don't check every box. But again, depending on the job market, you might want to consider the roles that you're going for based on how many of those preferred qualifications you actually meet. That's going to make you competitive. So I'd say pay attention more even to the preferred qualifications and, and make sure you check a couple of those, if not all of those. I love the, the ratio of required to preferred. It's like there's something funny if the preferred is bigger, because those should just be like a few extra nice to haves. That was a really cool insight that's just like at a quick glean, like something's fishy here. Yeah, totally. And they're trying to find, again, they might be trying to get someone that does three jobs of, of one person, you know? And again, they're getting around some compliance requirements there as well. So it's certainly a red flag. But also with the job description, take your time to go look at the company 
and see what other services or donors or clients that they might work with that are not listed in the job description that you can highlight in your cover letter that would be beneficial. There's a lot of information you can glean from outside that job description that you can put in your cover letter or make you a competitive candidate that they just didn't think to put in that job description. So do your homework, do your research on the company before even applying to it. I know it's it's low-hanging fruit when you see that easy apply button and you just want to click it. But yeah, just kind of look into it a little bit further. One thing I tell people to do is go look at other job descriptions from the company, right? Like, yeah, yeah, I'm applying to a senior marketing manager position, but go look at a product manager position. Go see, like, do you see, are they consistent? Is that, are they following a template or is it kind of like each hiring manager is getting to write their own? Are there other nuggets about the culture that got highlighted in one JD versus the other? I know it takes time, but I, I think to the point you're making, reading the JDs is one area where I think the mindset go slow to go fast can actually pay off in like a disproportionate way. Yeah. And it's a foundation. It's the starting point for you considering a job at that company. And like you said, look at other job descriptions, look at a level higher, look at a level below, see what they're in the years of experience or the qualifications that they have differentiating between levels. And then also go on LinkedIn, see if someone with that same position title has that role. What's their background look like? Are the requirements of the job description very different from what that current person's background looks like? They might be looking for a change or they might actually be looking for someone with that type of background. They just didn't write up the job description like that. So the job description is just a starting point. Something I really like to see in JDs, and we've tried to make a habit of doing it now, is to put who the position reports to. Like, have you gotten pushback on that? Or is that just something that's kind of like newish? Like, I don't know, is that something you you guys try to advocate for? Yeah, I've seen, I mean, for us, we'll put, um, if we know who, who the position is going to report to. So I say, if we know, because sometimes we're recruiting for contingent positions, meaning we're bidding on some work. We don't know if we're going to win it. So we don't know exactly, you know, who that position might be reporting to. So we don't put it in the job description in that case. So if, if it's not posted, it doesn't mean that the company doesn't know who the position is going to report to, but it might mean that. But typically, we'll put in the position title of who they're going to report to. We won't put the person's name. I have seen some job descriptions actually put in the name of the person, which I'm sure that person gets hit up a lot with a lot of messages. Um, and some people might not mind it. Well, especially because you have a lot of coaches out there telling people to DM the hiring managers directly. And I don't know, I think I feel like it's become so easy to communicate now and so easy to find people that maybe when that had like a higher effort bar, that was a good way to stand out. But now the scale might have ticked a little bit. Again, none of these things are universal. If it's a little company that's struggling to get candidates, I also think everyone thinks you just like post a job and you get thousands. That's actually not true. No. This is why recruiters exist. I mean, there's lots of companies that post jobs and it's crickets. And so you need help finding people because people aren't finding you. Even if you post on job boards and you pay, you get outbid by the big companies. So it's very hard to show up and get candidates. Yeah. But I think those things all come into play. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm probably proactively recruiting like 90% of the candidates I find for my positions, um, but they're they're so niche. That's why. But yeah, I think people think that recruiters are probably getting hundreds of messages a week. It's not necessarily like that. Hiring managers aren't necessarily getting hundreds of messages. So I think if you're doing a targeted message and you're actually competitively qualified for the job, sure, go for it. Someone can ignore your message or it takes less than 10 seconds for them to click on your LinkedIn profile to see if you're qualified. And then they can shoot your name off to the recruiting manager who can then schedule an interview or a screening. So 
I certainly advocate for it in certain circumstances. But again, it's really helpful information because if you're, say you apply to the job and you're prepping for the interview, you want to see who the position's going to be reporting to because you want to go and look at that person's background. It just helps with with prep too. And also their background, who you're reporting to, will give you some information or probably give you an idea of like who they're looking for in that candidate. Yeah. I mean, universally, I just think specificity helps in the job search. Specificity around the profile of the hiring manager, specificity around the JD, specificity on how you call out your unique, you know, reasons for why. Just And also specificity generally comes with more effort. And I think we value effort. So when you can just tell someone's just kind of like not putting in the work and you're just randomly DMing some PM that works at a company versus like the person who's probably in the department, who probably is this, this position reports to, chances are you'll probably get a better response. Yeah. But the the key thing you talked about is it requires effort, right? Like when you hear about people that are applying to like 300 jobs and they're getting like two callbacks, how much are they really scrutinizing maybe the job description or looking at the team and doing all that extra effort? So, I mean, that's why I always, I wish people would just apply to less jobs and spend more time on figuring out like, is this, is this really worth my time? Um, Is this a good fit for me? So yeah, I think putting in more effort Having it be more about quality versus quantity is just a general good way to approach that job search. Yeah, it's a tricky thing. And it's like finding that right balance because, you know, in one hour, I can apply to 20 jobs, five minutes each. I can apply to 10 jobs, six minutes each. I can apply to four jobs, 15 minutes each. You know, and I think people have kind of done the tests. I don't really trust anything out because there's so much nuance and each company's different and each resume is different. And timing, I think, is a big, big deal on, you know, how soon you applied relative to when the job was posted. But I'm a quality, not quantity person. If you can use tools that help you sort of, you know, get out more applications that at least still meet the same quality bar, then go for it. But in the absence of that, I would always prioritize quality. Yeah, totally. And I was thinking about it like with Teal, you know, with like the the software, you guys have that note section for each job. Like, that's so important that people are actually utilizing that. Like, why are you qualifying for this job? Like, what makes you a good fit for it? Go beyond just like the apply, click here. There's a lot more you can be doing and spending your your time on that. Also, I think people just are more having job burnout, job search burnout. And it doesn't have to be like that. Just putting in more of that time or that, or that quantity doesn't mean that it's it's a quality effort. And then you just might get tired. If your job search needs to take six months, really, but you're, you're thinking, I'm just going to blast as many job applications as I can in three months. You're going to get tired a lot quicker when you need to maintain that stamina for a six-month job search. Yeah, and it's tricky. It's like how you deploy the effort because the person could say, I am working really hard. I'm, I'm applying to jobs all day long. So it's like, sure, use that same amount of time and cut the applications in half, but still work the same amount of time. Don't do half the time. Think about it. It's like, oh, but I'm tailoring. That takes too long. It's like, just make sure, you know, people want to do like a match score and we make tools that help with all that stuff. But at the end of the day, you should be able to read it, take the resume and the job description and say, does this, re- if I was reading this resume objectively and applying for this job, would I be like, yeah, that person can do this job. If it doesn't pass that like sniff test, no tool, job scan, us, whatever, a human's going to read it and you have to like feel confident. Yes, this shows I'm qualified. I also think people sometimes put on like rose colored glasses. And like, oh, yeah, it's like, come on, give it to a friend, give it to a friend and have them say, hey, would this resume for this JD, would you hire this resume? Almost like take your name off of it or something. Yeah. Because I think you need that level of objectivity in this process. Yeah. And I think it's not that people don't have that or don't understand it. They're just trying to, again, it's speed, right? When you're doing something 
fast and quick, you're not going to be scrutinizing. Again, most people approach jobs descriptions or like when they're looking for jobs. Do I want to do this job and can I do this job? Sure. You'll answer yes to hundreds of jobs if you're going by that. But you have to think about like, am I competitive for this? Can I hit the ground running? Like, is the company going to have to invest in a learning curve for me? And so you have to ask yourself tons more questions to say, is this worth my time? Is it worth the company's time to even look at my resume? And people just, I think, don't want to do a lot of the, those deeper questions because it's, it's just time consuming. So it's not fun. I get it. It's not fun. But it can be. No, no. If like sort of take control of it, which again, is tricky and it's sort of privileged to say stuff like that. So I, I get it. I get that it's hard. But effort in, effort out, you know, sort of effort in and results out is sort of how I think about it. Absolutely. Yep. Not always. And there's folks who try really, really hard, do all the things, follow all the steps. And there's still, you know, some markets are more saturated than others and more competitive than others. So, I mean, this is the first time I think and since I've been using LinkedIn that I've seen so many posts about I've applied to these jobs. I've done all the networking. I've done everything. I've been employed for a year, you know, like, and I I believe those people. I think they're they're actually doing everything they possibly can. But there's just some things, too, that are out of they're out of your control, right? You can do everything. It's just going to be a matter of time until something comes your way. Keep at it. Well, this was super insightful. I think we really did a deep dive on JDs that we haven't before, which I think was really cool. I think we're going to deal will benefit from this. We'll write better ones. And so I think this is like a really nice balance of practitioner advice as well as job seeker advice. But anything you'd want to wrap up with, Stephanie? Uh, no, I think we covered a lot. I'm glad that we did do a deep dive in this. But yeah, I mean, feel free to follow me on LinkedIn. And I also do, you know, job hunting coaching on the side. I have a job hunt scorecard on my website, smcareercoach.com. So if people want to take a look at how their job search is going or where they can improve, they can um, check out that scorecard. That is awesome. We will link to that in the description. Thanks so much for joining and thanks for volunteering when I put out the call for other guests. I'm really glad we got. Yeah, I was so happy to see it. I'm, I'm happy that you had me on. So thank you. All right. Awesome. We'll have to do another one. Thanks, Stephanie. OK, great. Thanks, David. I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. We are here to help job seekers. The point of this show is to give you the behind the scenes look at the hiring practices of companies and to debunk a lot of the myths and fear mongering that's out there. So if you like the show, please subscribe. Would love for you to write me on LinkedIn or comment on one of my posts if you'd like to be a guest. We're really looking for practitioners that are in the hiring role, whether it be a hiring manager or a recruiter. We wanna give people that inside view to what it looks like like to be hired and to understand the inside view of how companies operate. So please let me know. And if you're job searching, check out Teal, tealhq.com. We are here to help you land a job you love. All right, thanks. And we'll catch you on the next one.